This is Living Catholic with Father Don Wolf. Living Catholic is a fresh look at issues confronting each of us today. This show deals with living out the Catholic faith, what that means for Catholics, as well as the impact on the rest of society. You certainly don't have to be Catholic to enjoy this show. And now, your host, Father Don Wolf. Welcome, Oklahoma, to Living Catholic. I'm Father Don Wolf, pastor of Sacred Heart Parish in Oklahoma City and rector of the Shrine of Blessed Stanley Rother. The American bishops are concerned about the misunderstanding prevalent among our, among our people concerning the Eucharist. According to some of the latest polls, there are a good number of people who are confused concerning our teaching about what the Eucharist is and what receiving communion is all about. This is especially troubling because the celebration of Mass and the receiving of the body and the blood of Christ is the apex of our belief in Christ and the summit of our discipleship. If these become muddied or uncertain, then the whole life of faith begins to fail. In response, the, bish the bishops have launched a series of initiatives, both nationwide and in their own respective dioceses, to help everyone refocus on the centrality of Eucharistic life. We've already experienced a number of these here in Oklahoma City, and several more are planned. Many of these focus on Eucharistic adoration and the developing and developing a greater sense of prayerful presence with the Lord in exposition and adoration. These are important and traditional means for the whole community to reorient itself to the real presence of Christ at Mass and in the Church. The bishops are asking us to be reset by the gift of Jesus' own presence and its meaning in our communities and in our lives. And all of these elements are important. But if we focus only on doubts about the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist and not on some of the other challenges facing us, our efforts run the risk of being misplaced. What we have opted for and have tried to begin are good beginnings, but they are only that. The first thing we have to focus on is something else, which is discipleship. As a matter of the progression of belief, we find in the scriptures it is discipleship that comes first. Jesus reveals his real presence only later and develops his disciples' belief in his promises only after they have had experience in following him. If the Eucharist offers us a if the Eucharist offers us the presence of Christ and we are indifferent to him in every way, the Eucharist probably doesn't matter much to us. Just the other day, I had a very contentious conversation with a young woman who barked at me for quite a long time about the faults and problems in the church. Now, it's fine to find fault. Heaven knows I do with what we choose to do or how we end up living our faith together. But in her very angry words, it was clear she had no idea what the church is and what it's supposed to be. And more than anything else, she had no concept of her participation in it. She was an occupant of the church, but not a disciple. She had spent a lot of time going to church, but her other education had leached out any notion of belief in Jesus or indeed belief in God. As she so triumphantly put it, if you believe in God, it's only because somebody told you. It's as if she walked over to the seashore of believing, put one toe in it for one second, and then pulled back. And ever since that moment, she has been surrounded by those who have celebrated her timorousness. Talking to her about the real presence of Christ is not a congenial offer to her. It's not a moment of salvation, but a chance to fight. She rejoices in rejection. And it's her and her kind that we have to be the most interested in. We have to talk about discipleship first. 
We have to encounter Christ as disciples, as those interested in finding who he might be, rather than simply being a student who's glad to know about his presence. That's our premier challenge. But first, a story. This is from the semi-autobiography of James Baldwin called The Fire Next Time. In this book, he describes a portion of his young life. He was a prodigy from Harlem in New York City, a young boy who became a famous preacher among the churches there. As a child, he would make the circuits of the churches and gatherings there, wowing everyone with his eloquence and insight, even as a child. Once, he described he had finished his time at one of the services and was sitting in the stairwell listening to another famous preacher, a woman, who was also famously active among the churches there. Her preaching was moving and powerful. It wowed the congregation wherever she preached. And little James was as he mo- was as moved by her as any adult was, as he sat there wrapped off to the side of the sanctuary listening to her. When she finished, she walked off and into the stairwell. When she saw him sitting there, she asked, And whose little boy are you? And Baldwin replied, Yours. From that moment, he said, he was ready to give himself to her and to the ministry that she represented. And then he wrote about the ministry. He said, Jesus and I came to the foot of the cross together, and there we made a deal. I would serve him and his ministry for me, give myself to whatever it required. And he, he would make sure nothing changed. It was the bargain that we made together. And then he added, he didn't keep his end of the bargain. My life did change. He was a much better man than I gave him credit for. Baldwin knew discipleship is above all about transformation. Nobody comes to the Lord and then comes away without at least being engaged by the prospect of being changed. This is the message of the scriptures. It's virtually the entire script of the New Testament. Certainly, it's the major theme of the Gospels. People encounter Christ, and they are made different. This is made evident in the first words Jesus speaks to Simon Peter. He says to him and his brother, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. His first words to him were that he might become different. His days as a fisherman were not over, but they were to be transformed. If he put down his nets, walked away from the family business, and set his sights on the coming of the kingdom of God— He would remain a fisherman, but what he caught would change. He would become a fisher of men. Simon Peter was promised transformation. This is the definition of discipleship. Those who encounter Jesus are made different. Whether it's in their intent, the product of circumstances, or even whether it's against their will, they are all made different. That's manifested in the scriptures in a variety of ways. There are those who sought Jesus out in order to be healed. The one that first comes to mind is the woman who had a bleeding problem for years. We might notice she is never named. She stands for those many who in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels are healed on virtually every page. They come to us in the stories from the scriptures and are described in history as the sick. Their anonymity becomes part of their affliction. This woman drew close to him in the crowd when he walked by and chose to touch his garment so that her life would be transformed. When she touched the hem of his garment, something like an electric shock went through Jesus as he felt healing power go out of him, and no doubt she felt something like it as well. And with that, she was healed and her life was changed. She no longer was perpetually unclean, excluded from the ranks of normal life. She was made whole. Her life became different in fulfillment of her deepest desire. 
There's no account of her following him in any formal way. But according to the reports from the gospel itself, all of Jerusalem poured out to bring their sick to be healed by Jesus. She became the one of the first of a long line of those who came to be touched by him, to live transformed lives because of him. We could also take a moment to advert to the paralyzed man brought to Jesus by his friends. There was no place around where Jesus was speaking, so they opened up the roof of the place where he was and lowered the mat down so that he was in front of Jesus. His words to him was that he might pick up his mat and go home. He wasn't just healed. There was something more than merely causing his synapses to fit back together again so that he might be able to control his nerve signals to his muscles. This man, who had laid on his mat for a long time, was sent back home, restored to the place where he belonged. He wasn't just made healthy. He was given his life back. He was made whole. There was Lazarus. He was a deep friend of Jesus whose sisters formed a deep bond with Jesus, the the rabbi, and the teacher. In the first century, death was a village affair, and those who dealt with it knew its smell and its touch. When they laid Lazarus in the tomb, he was dead. Even though this friend of Jesus had raised others from the dead, the rabbi, even though this friend, Jesus, had raised others from the dead, The rabbi was not present when Lazarus died and only arrived days later to visit his sisters. But Jesus, as he went to the tomb, called out Lazarus's name and he was resuscitated. He came out of the tomb and out of the kingdom of death to be greeted by Jesus. Later, it is recorded that he and his sisters were part of the crowd of those who visited Jesus and helped to support him. His life was changed even beyond his knowledge and certainly beyond his choice. Jesus called his name when he had no capacity to respond, and he walked out of the tomb transformed. In fact, his transformation has to be the most radical of any recorded in the New Testament. While we can acknowledge that others were given life and their pathways were changed, Lazarus was put on a pathway of new life and from the darkness of death, literally. And there is St. Paul as we meet him with the Hebrew name, Saul. As a young Pharisee, he strove to outdo others in his adherence to the law, especially by going after those who were focused on Jesus as the Messiah and chose to follow him. Paul came from a prosperous place and a prosperous family. He'd gone to college at the most famous Jewish school in the history of Judaism up to today, and he was related to those who sat on the Sanhedrin. He was performing his part as the hot-headed enforcer of those who understood that those who followed Jesus had to be gotten in line. After helping to arrange the death of Stephen, he put in his papers so as to head to Damascus and stamp out the growing Christian threat arising there. And on his way, a bright light struck around him and he heard the words he never thought he would hear in in reference to himself, the word persecutor. He heard his name and he heard the question, Saul, why do you persecute me? He was so puzzled he had to ask, who are you? And the answer was one he never forgot and that triggered the beginning of the transformation of his life. It was, I am Jesus, the one you persecute. When he stood up, he opened his eyes, but he found out he couldn't see. The truth, of course, was that he had been blind his whole life, but it took this encounter for him to understand that he had to complete this journey in order to begin to see. St. Paul lived out his life reflecting on the gift he had been given. This encounter with Christ and the even more important encounter with Ananias, 
who ushered him into the church and provided him with the encounter with the living Christ at baptism made him profoundly different. In the Acts of the Apostles, it even recounts what others said about him. They said, he who once persecuted us now speaks of the Lord Jesus. And so he did. In fact, Paul was so deeply changed, he reflected that his discipleship changed every part of his identity. He wrote, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is no longer my life, he insisted. I live for this other who lives in me. There is no greater claim and no more powerful moment than to realize that life has not just taken another direction, it has new ownership. That's the heart of discipleship. All of those in these stories who encountered Jesus were transformed. This is the heart of what it means to be a disciple. They become different than they were before because Jesus touched them. In fact, the entire message of Jesus in the language he used and the promises he offered was the promise to make people's lives different, to transform. We often don't see it because the words we've taken, because the words have taken on a life of their own. But when they were first heard, the people heard the promise of difference and the prospect of transforming power. Jesus said, repent, which means to turn around and to go in another direction. He came out of the desert and announced that the good news of victory already won was among us. And if we believe such a thing is true, our lives can't continue on the same path. So go in the new direction and this new truth that the, go in the direction that this new truth is coming from. Repent, go in a different direction and be transformed. Jesus said that sins were forgiven, the blight in our lives and the darkness that has stained our original vocation as the image and the likeness of God has been cured. We need not live in the darkness of our sinful behavior, but can start again and have hope that we can live our lives new. We can be transformed from the victims of circumstance into those who do God's own work. So, those who cho whose choices blighted their lives and their prospects, like the Samaritan woman at the well, and those who had sinned in shameful and undeniable ways, like the woman caught in adultery, and those whose lives had been interrupted and devastated by their weakness, like the paralyzed man lowered down through the ceiling in front of Jesus, all of them were granted the gift of forgiveness and their lives were changed. They were transformed. And perhaps most importantly, those who suffered the cruelties of life were offered a stage on which their difficulties made sense to them. The man born blind, it was promised that his sickness and suffering had a place in God's own plan so that all he had endured was not simply a bad roll of the cosmic dice, but was instead so that the truth of God's revelation might change hearts. St. Peter is another example. He was chosen to lead the apostles. When we hear of St. Peter's role in the church in the Acts of the Apostles, we begin to understand who he was. In all of the Gospels, Peter's denial of Jesus is recounted. It's impossible to diminish it. But as the church was formed in the time following the resurrection, Peter's authority comes as much because he had denied Christ and yet remained head of the church as it came from his being the head despite his having denied Christ. Peter was transformed by his weakness into a true leader. After all, who better to proclaim the promise of forgiveness than the one who needed it the most? True disciples are those who have been transformed. This is probably the most interesting and the most attractive thing about the example of Blessed Stanley Rother. He was transformed in his discipleship from the marginal student and unlikely priest 
into the witness of Christ's power and the unconquerable power of the church present in the midst of pain and suffering. No one on the day of his ordination could have predicted what he accomplished in this life. And certainly no one in any version of predicting the future could have imagined a shrine built on its spot to honor the example he entrusted to us. And this happened because he was a disciple. His life changed because he followed Christ into the difficult circumstances of life where everything for him became different. He went to Guatemala to be the handyman in the rectory. He stayed to become a martyr and a saint because his discipleship mattered. The heart of Eucharist is also transformation. It's what we celebrate and what we all learn about from the beginning. If we understand the nature of this transformation, we have the beginnings of what it means to be true disciples and truly live what we receive when we come up to the aisle for communion. We all know the conundrum we face, and it's easy to name. We celebrate the Eucharist, we come up for communion, we receive what we are promised, but the transformation engendered doesn't happen, or at least it doesn't happen as profoundly as we need. There's too much space between what we say, what we do, and what happens. Certainly, it's not a problem limited to the church. It's the problem for every part of our humanity and in each part of society. We desire honesty, but we quail at its demands. We look at those around us who seem to betray their office and are indifferent to the strictures of service, but we won't step up to serve. We celebrate truth, but often are swept away by the powers of untruth. It seems to be a torrent in our day and time. And we abhor evil, but we are also fascinated by it. Sometimes it seems we are tempted to stare the snake in the eye until we're all hypnotized by its immovable reflection. So what's supposed to happen doesn't always happen. That's the great challenge we have in the Eucharist. The greatest gift, even if it's given in the best circumstance and in anticipation of the greatest season, can be left unopened and then put away in the closet, never to be thought of again. If this is the case, even if it comes from the one who loves us the most and comes at Christmas Eve, not to open the gift is the same as not receiving it. To leave it as it is and put it away is the same as having no gift at all. In the same vein, it doesn't matter who it comes from or what anticipation we might have to receive it. If it remains unopened, the box might as well be empty. If the Eucharist is not received, it becomes no more than an empty gesture. It might as well be, as St. Paul wrote of his life without charity, a sounding gong or a darkened mirror, empty. We have to approach the Eucharist as it is promised, as the embodiment of transformation. In this, there are three levels of transformation we celebrate. We too often think of only one and leave it go at that. In fact, this first level is what we teach the first communion class, and we're happy they learn it. The next two levels are for adults. Too bad for us, we often never get to them. In the weeks to come, we'll get into these other levels. Suffice it to say for now, they are both the product of our transformation in Christ as well as the beginning of it. It's not so much unlike any other relationship we enter into as it is founded in us, perhaps by an introduction by another, it begins. But as we progress in it and as it grows in depth and intensity, it leads us deeper into it and bears fruit due to its deep roots and its real depth. One aids the other. So it is, as we encounter the Lord and follow him, the Eucharistic revival begins with our encounter with the Lord and with his presence in our lives. The transformation begins in Christ. Back in just a moment. 
to our final segment, Faith in Verse, have a poem today called Flying. The miles fly by from my window seat, and I, high above the patched ground, see the limpid, dimpled clouds below, hurrying past so fast at near speed of sound. We measure time, find seconds more than miles. They truly matter, spatter the watch's face, and lay out about our scheduled arrival. We look askance, advance at our measured pace. It's a miracle. The spherical globe passes all below as we hurry, scurrying above the solid earth. From the past, fast travel gives us mobility, so we may, say, lift our feet above the turf and quickly go so far, so fast away to find now what allows us to imagine anew, a world created, instantiated by the Spirit that inbreathes, unsheathes all we are and do. That's fly. This Eucharistic revival is uh, a necessary and important part of the life of the church in our age. The initiative that the bishops have taken is really important for all of us to pay attention to and to be a part of. After all, that revival happens when we are revived and in no other way. And so it's not just for those of us who uh, understand and participate and actively uh, pursue this life, this Eucharistic life that is our inheritance as faithful Catholics. It's also the opportunity for us to, to act on what we receive, which is the very body of Christ. That is, we are embodied uh, in Christ to become the hands and the decision-making and the life of Christ for others in our world. That's what the Eucharistic, Eucharistic revival is really all about. Not simply to say yes to the right kind of question, but to actually live the Eucharist in our lives. That's what we strive to do here at Living Catholic. I hope you can join us in the weeks to come. Living Catholic is a production of Oklahoma Catholic Radio. To learn more, visit okcr.org.